Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we'll go through the concept of burnout and how it can affect your finances. Now I did a recent Q&A episode where I discussed the concept of burnout and since then I've had a lot of feedback about how it's such an important thing in healthcare. So I thought it's best that I dedicate an entire episode about it and discuss the financial implications of it. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting, or asset protection for the extra risk we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, the aim is education, empowerment, and entertainment. In this episode, we will discuss the concept of burnout and how it will affect your finances if left unchecked. Now, I use the word concept or condition on purpose because it is a condition, but it is not a medical diagnosis. This episode will mainly focus about burnout with regards to your work, And a lot of people are now feeling the heat as we slowly get out of this pandemic. If you work in the health environment, a lot of good things have happened when it comes to the pandemic. Now, we are relatively restrictionless in Australia. Um, Now, at the time of recording, I don't know much about WA. I know earlier this year they had some really harsh restrictions in terms of border restrictions. Um, So I'm not sure about that. But most of the eastern seaboard of Australia, South Australia, all that sort of stuff, uh, and Northern Territory even to some extent, I think are restrictionless. We have freedom of movement between states and international borders with some reduced restrictions. In fact, at the time of recording this episode, I'm actually in the Gold Coast for a conference and I didn't have to check in. I didn't have to do those, you know, pre-interstate travel declarations, all that sort of stuff. It was so much easier. You still had to wear masks on planes and have masks on at the airport, but um, largely at the resort that I'm staying in, you don't have to wear masks indoors um, and you can walk outside, don't have to wear a mask, all that sort of stuff. So from a freedom of movement and restrictions point of view, we are certainly in a much better state in April 
than we were in January, um, certainly in Australia. So that's great. Now, isolation requirements mostly have changed from two weeks to seven days. And even that is getting looked at right now. For example, in Victoria and in Queensland, um, close contact definitions have changed. You don't need to isolate even if you are a close contact in Victoria. Now, that hasn't been the case for healthcare workers if you're working in the health industry for a number of months, but this now affects the entire community, which is fantastic. So, you know, if you've got a child at home uh, who's in you know high school it's got COVID or whatever it is and they're isolating then they can do Zoom learning from home and you can go to work if you really wanted to and there may be some workplace restrictions on maybe getting tested upon entry or that so there's lots of opportunities now in terms of the pandemic we are slowly dare I say sustainably coming out of this pandemic Now, the PPE guidance for healthcare workers has changed as well. Now, at least for me, who mainly works in emergency settings, I no longer have to wear those stupid full gowns for the entire uh, shifts to see non-COVID patients as well as COVID patients. There was a time in Victoria where we had to wear those gowns, N95 masks, face shields, hairnets, shoe coverage, all that sort of stuff all the time. And, you know, my shifts are relatively long, so I do about 12 to 14 hours. So it was just painful. Now, you know, I just have to wear an N95 mask um, and wear eye protection. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah, the N95, when I first started wearing it early in the pandemic two years ago, it was a bit annoying, tight fitting, and at times suffocating. Ironically, it's amazing what humans get used to. So when I wear a surgical mask, because I had to wear a surgical mask to get on a uh, plane, um, it kind of felt really odd. It wasn't as tight fitting. It was quite loose. I could see air leaks. Uh, I could feel air leaks, dare I say. So it was a bit odd, but uh, it, it's quite amazing what humans get used to, um, particularly when uh, they're put through the ringers at times of stress. But so far, I'm happy to just wear an N95 at work and maybe wear eye protection and just wear those gowns and full PPE for SCOVIDs or COVID. SCOVID means suspected COVID patients. So there are some great things that have happened in the last, you know, six to 10 weeks uh, in Australia. And I just don't think we're going back down to lockdowns ever again. Um, Interestingly, uh, in countries like China and cities like Shanghai, they're locking down their citizens again. I'm not really sure why they're doing it. Um, Are they not getting much information how the rest of the world has behaved in terms of COVID, how we're sustainably in Australia and I think in New Zealand as well? And to some extent, our North American colleagues are slowly getting out of this pandemic reasonably well. Um, Subcontinent has pretty much forgotten about the pandemic, dare I say, um, particularly in India. And Western Europe is also, you know, slowly getting out of this pandemic as well. Uh, I'm not really sure what's happening in the continents of South America and also Africa, but I suspect it's somewhere in the middle. So there are some good things. But what's happening in healthcare is because there's freedom of movement, because there's more intermingling, because there's more travel and now international borders have essentially opened so people are coming into Australia, I'm actually seeing international visitors uh, in emergency, which is 
great to see people. I mean, I've seen patients from Malta, uh, the UK, from Canada, more recently from Germany, he went surfing and, and, and basically bunged his head open. So it's great to see international people coming into Australia, which is great for the tourism industry. Um, but of course, what's happening is because of the increased human movement, then all the injuries, all the illnesses, um, the emergency departments, the hospitals, the general practitioners, the allied health people, they're all very busy. So burnout is a real, real topic that's uh, hot out there, uh, particularly amongst the healthcare workforce. So we're going to talk about that in this episode and how it affects your finances. So what is burnout? It's a state of physical and mental exhaustion. That leads to a constant sense of reduced accomplishment, which then eventually leads to loss of your personal identity. It's a real problem in the workplace. And it can affect any workplace. It doesn't have to be healthcare. It can be in any specialist workplace. And at home as well, you can get burnout at home, although this episode mainly focuses about work-related issues. Even if you don't do paid work and you're a stay-at-home mom or dad or parent or auntie or uncle or grandpa, whatever it is, and you're looking after kids or you're working from home, it's very taxing. As many stay-at-home parents will explain, particularly what's happened in the last two years with the pandemic, and especially if you have young children. So if you're interested in learning more about this in terms of burnout as a physiological, psychological sort of concept, um, then I think it's reasonable to have a read of the Maslach Leader Theories on Burnout, or just Google Maslach Burnout Theories. So is burnout a medical diagnosis? And as explained, it isn't but it is classified as an occupational phenomenon. So there's a fair bit of evidence, which is often linked to other medical diagnosis, if you have burnout or experiencing burnout. So you're more likely to enter depression or anxiety or PTSD. So mental illness can increase in patients that have burnout. You can become more hypertensive, that is have higher blood pressure on average compared to someone who doesn't experience burnout. You're more likely to get type 2 diabetes if you experience burnout chronically compared to someone who doesn't. And you're more likely to have hypercholesteremia or high cholesterol levels if you experience burnout. Now, what I couldn't find is it's not really clear whether this is a direct causation or just a correlation. So that is, do people with depression suffer burnout more or does burnout directly lead to major depression? So, couldn't get much into that and you might have to do your own googling and research and data about it. Now there's lots of research into the types of people that are more susceptible to burnout. So let's talk a little bit about risk factors. Number one, workload or work overload. This is a pretty reasonably obvious risk factor and certainly very relevant in healthcare because there's always an endless shortage of staff. This puts additional pressure on existing staff to overwork, take on more tasks, and when this happens, the quality of those done tasks is lower. Now, there is no one way one person can do the work of two people. No matter what you do, it is not sustainable in the long run. And this leads to more work hours. So you spend more time at work doing work. Now, we know the risks of heart disease and diabetes increases if you work consistently more than 50 hours per week. That's well documented. And this is likely to the stressors, but also putting your body through extremes of physiology. And this results in lack of sleep, eating poorly, 
and just not having the time to energise via exercise or just giving your mental state a bit of a rest. So let's use an example to highlight this point. Now, some of these examples are real-life scenarios that I've encountered, witnessed, or assisted with, with colleagues, friends, or people that have reached out to me over the internet. Amy is a nurse unit manager at a rural hospital ward. She's three EFTs short. It's a Friday morning, and unfortunately, one of the ward nurses has called in sick. Amy has audits and meetings to prepare for. She now has to abandon those tasks. She's unable to fill this gap in the roster. The ward is full. Amy decides to work on the floor to gap fill the shift. Pandemic pressures has meant agency staff are also hard to come by. And staff isolation requirements also mean they're down more staff. So, what are the flow-on effects of this? Amy is now working on the floor, looking after the patients, rather than doing her primary role, which is nurse unit manager. If she didn't work on the floor, then current floor staff will have to chip in by caring for extra patients, which burdens them. And Amy is the manager. She can't tolerate that. She can't tolerate the fact that her staff have to cop extra workload because of sick leave. So Amy has now shifted that burden onto herself. She decides after her shift, she may need to stay back to complete those regular tasks that she was meant to do, like audits and prepare for meetings next week, etc. And this may result in her staying back later that day or even coming the weekend to finish those tasks. Now, this is not unusual. If you're a nurse unit manager, if you know of a nurse unit manager, this is not unusual. Number two, personality traits. There are some people with some personalities who are more susceptible to burnout than others. Perfectionists, pessimists, and people who are just more excitable. They have an easily triggered stress response, which leads to more chances they will burn out. Type A personality people are more at risk, and they are more impatient and can't deal with hassles at work. They get irritated more easily. This is likely because they're more goal-oriented and task-oriented, more so than others. People are workaholics, people-pleasers. They're also at high risk of burnout more easily. Workaholics are more likely to neglect self-care, are performance-oriented, and as a result, may get worn out much more easily. And the people-pleaser is trying to help others, sometimes detrimental to their own work and personal performance or even health. Number three lack of control in the workplace. Remember, we're talking about people that burn out and their risk factors. Lack of control in the workplace. So what does that mean? Perceived control in the workplace, I think, is a really important thing for your employees. If you feel you're not in control in your workplace, it just means you're unlikely to do things efficiently or effectively. Managers will seriously need to think about how they can hand back some of the controls to their employees so the employee has some workplace latitude. Let's use an example of how this comes into play in healthcare. Again, based on a real-life example. Amy is a resident medical officer working under the surgical unit at a large tertiary hospital. Now, Amy is not new to being a resident medical officer. She's a third-year resident, so relatively senior in terms of residency. And for those of you that don't know how the medical system works... Once you do medical school, you become an intern, then you become a resident, year one, then you become a resident, year two, 
Then you become a resident year three. So this doctor is four years out of medical school. So they're relatively experienced in terms of how to manage workloads. So Amy is perfectly capable of handling busy workloads, clinical and non-clinical. The usual workloads for surgical residents, you're looking at about 50 to 60 hours per week. Now, there's a new registrar in the unit. The registrar is micromanaging every aspect of Amy's workflow. This includes how to organise her days, when to order tests, when to organise audits, and even how to structure the presentation slides. Amy has been a surgical resident before. This is not her first gig. And she's also developed her own systems that she knows and executes perfectly well, according to her. She has not missed a beat when it comes to clinical duties and non-clinical duties, but she now feels that a new registrar is trying to impose a new system, which is affecting her efficiency and effectiveness at work. She's starting to feel a lack of control in her workplace environment and is actually thinking about moving to another unit or simply resigning from the job and locoming for a few months. Her sleep patterns have worsened and she dreads going to work every day only to know her entire workday will be constantly scrutinised by this registrar. Now, if you're a junior doctor, you're listening to that, you probably can relate to that. This has happened to everyone. And I say everyone. And this has happened in nursing, and I'm sure this has happened in allied health as well, and certainly happened in the hospital system. What about in the community? What if you're a GP registrar? Yeah, it's happened in general practice as well. They have supervisors who are constantly scrutinising things, becomes a toxic workplace. It happens. It's happened. It's happening. So perceived control in the workplace is a really important phenomenon for everyone to have and grasp. Number four, absence of fairness. Now, when we get a job, the implication is that we'll be treated fairly and equitably, regardless of anything. If there is a sense of unfairness at work, then that can lead to lack of loyalty, a sense of unfair justice, which leads to more bitterness and cynicism. Then you get the feeling that everyone is replaceable. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is a nurse working in the emergency department. She's a critically care-trained nurse. Despite having more experience in critical care and emergency medicine, she has noticed she's constantly being allocated to back cubicles. Newer, more younger nurses are being allocated day shifts, resus cubicles, despite not having the full qualifications that she possesses. She has also noted that she's been allocated to more night shifts. She's noticed workplace clicks and is finding it hard to grind along and get along with newer staff who seem to get their own way and despite Amy being with the organisation for a consistently long time. Amy has started to look at other jobs and other work options and is thinking of resigning from a current workplace. She feels there is an absence of fairness and her skills are not being utilised appropriately. She doesn't see a future with the current organisation and is constantly being tired, neglected and has also noted a significant weight gain in recent times. Number five, lack of community. Now, this tends to happen when there is no sense of collegiality at the workplace. This especially happens in healthcare when there are mergers, takeovers or new managers or executive team that are absolutely, you know, no idea what's going on. Lack of engagement with team members and managers leading to disillusionment. Now, trying to do what you can with a lack of resources or even equipment leads to increased workloads. With no one to turn out and lack of workplace support structures, it's a disaster waiting to happen. 
Now, to give you an example of how lack of community and collegiality can affect your workplace or even lack of equipment, I have doctors contact me that work in general practice and the GP clinic room doesn't have the basic equipment like a stethoscope, a blood pressure machine, sometimes an otoscope or an ophthalmoscope. And the doctor is expected to bring their own equipment. This is a bit bizarre. That affects lack of collegiality. That affects lack of community. And you just can't do your job properly. And of course, you lack the sense of belonging in such a workplace. So those are some of the risk factors that may lead to people getting burnt out much more likely compared to people that don't have those risk factors. So what are the symptoms of burnout? Here are eight questions that you can ask yourself as a screening test. And perhaps you can do this as you listen to me right now. Now, this is by no means a medical advice podcast. So please speak to a professional. Your doctor is probably, your GP is probably the best person to speak to when it comes to, or if you've got an established relationship with a psychologist, or even just a good friend that you know and trust. But here are some of the things that you can possibly ask yourself that flags burnout. Number one, have you become cynical at work? Or do you drag yourself to work most of the days? Number two, are you more irritable or impatient with your work colleagues or even patients or even at home? Number three is, do you have difficulty concentrating at work? Do you get easily distracted? Number four is, do you lack satisfaction from work achievements? Number five is, are you using food, drugs or alcohol to help you feel better? or perhaps numb the effects of work. That's a red flag. Number six is, do you sleep properly? Number seven is, do you have unexplained complaints like stomach aches, headaches, bowel problems, and you and your doctor can't really work out what the problem is? Now, during 2020 in China, they did a study of burnout among physicians to get a sense of what was happening out there during the pandemic. Here are the results. The randomly recruited 330 physicians in Shanghai across four health networks. They filled out questionnaires about their work environments, personalities to collect data on burnout risk factors. And they noted that burnout rates were in their 70% range with lack of personal accomplishment as the number one symptom. The other risk factors included shift work, occupational stress, poor social supports. Those are the main ones. And the predictors for this included male gender, more senior physicians, low psychological empathy, and surprisingly, having a high income. So having a high income, the more money these physicians made, it made them more at risk of burnout. Now, I suspect this is likely to do with the fact that by earning more money being related to how much work they may have to do to earn that money. And therefore, you work more, And work overload is a stress factor or risk factor for burnout. Similar studies have been conducted in Australia with similar results. And when you get burnt out, what are the consequences? Your stress levels rise, you get more fatigued, you get more lethargic, you tend to sleep poorly, you get sad, you get angry, you get more irritable more often. And you may tend to seek out drugs, food or alcohol to calm your fears. And you're at risk of getting a range of health issues, including low energy, depression, 
anxiety, PTSD, hypertension, diabetes, and all of this increases your risk, of course, of cardiovascular disease and stroke disease. So what can you do about burnout? Number one, you've got to take time out. I think that's really important. Although burnout is not a medical diagnosis, I don't doubt that anyone can decline a day off work as a result. So you may want to speak to your manager about your symptoms and that perhaps you need one or two days off work just to recharge your batteries. Now again, you've got to be careful about whether you get along with your manager or not. Your manager has a due responsibility for your welfare at work. So if you think your manager is not the right person, it can get a little bit tricky. But you need to escalate, keep notes, etc. about your symptoms and to make sure that ultimately, when you work in an environment where you're caring for other people that are vulnerable, our patients, that you don't do something that's bad for the patient because as a result of your burnout. Because when you do that, you will get reprimanded And having an excuse like, I was burnt out or I was burnt out is probably not going to save you too much. So taking time out is really important. Number two is you've got to evaluate your options. If it's a systems issue that's addressing your burnout, then address it early. Speak to your manager. Now, I've been a manager for a number of years and I think sometimes I'm amazed things were happening during my managership and I had no idea about it in the department. Why? Because healthcare workers are awesome at creating workaround systems because it's easier to do this than actually fixing the problem. It's much easier. That's also true in the short term, but it's maybe not true in the long term. Unless you fix the system's issues, the problems get worse. Patchworks don't work. Now, working out systems-based issues will lead to better solutions or at least provide a realistic work environment where you and your organisation need to compromise. It's a long, hard slog, but think about it from a systems point of view. If you can address a systems issue, it may actually make your life a lot easier, but it actually makes everyone's life a lot easier, including your hospital or your clinic or your practice or your colleagues. Number three is... Seek support and raise your hand. Suffering in silence is a terrible thing. Reaching out is the best thing you can do. I'd be a bit careful reaching out to colleagues who work with you if you don't trust them enough due to the confidentiality issues. So just be a little bit careful around that. Reach out perhaps to a good friend, family member who can provide support or even advise about your workplace issues or someone a little bit more senior who's been through it. Now, most health organisations, particularly in the public sector, have what's called EAP, Employee Assistance Program. This is something to utilise. It's independent and keeps workplace people out of it. Now, unfortunately, I don't think small businesses like GP practices, allied health practices will have EAP on their books, but sometimes they may, depending on how big their practices are, particularly the very large ones. Number four, reduce your work hours. This is a good option, but of course needs some financial backup. I reduced my hours in 2020, planned it pre-pandemic, no more night shifts. I again reduced my workload in 2021, no more on calls. This has resulted in better circadian rhythms, more time to exercise, and of course, time to podcast. Number five, have multiple workplaces. How's that going to 
address burnout? That's a really good question. I, oh, if you have multiple workplaces, isn't that a bad thing? Doesn't that mean that you're going to be working more than usual? Actually, it may not be a bad thing for some people. This is often an overlooked strategy. Sometimes you can't change your workplace issues, but you love the people that you work with and you love the job. So what do you do? Having multiple workplaces to change the scenario is useful. Now, personally, I've had a minimum of two to three workplaces for many, many years. I find it great. I don't tend to work more than two days consecutively at any one workplace. The boredom sets in really quickly for me, so two days is usually the maximum consecutively I tend to work at any workplace. And definitely don't work more than three days a week in any one workplace. Now, in Victoria, the other reason I do that is I get to salary package three times, etc., etc. So there's tax advantages, uh, which other states you may not be able to enjoy. But having multiple workplaces means having multiple scenarios and scenery, which might be good for your mental health, and occupational health. Number six, practice mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is an act of focusing on your breath flow and being intensely aware of what you're actually sensing and feeling at every moment without interpretation or judgment. In a job setting, the practice involves facing situations with openness and patience and without judgment. And number seven, see your GP. I see my GP about three times a year. I make sure I get my health checks done. And it's quite amazing how effective this can be. Talk to your GP or even if you have a psychologist, if you're experiencing burnout, and just make sure that you protect your greatest income-producing capacity, and that's you. Now, that concludes the burnout as a topic. And after the break, I'll go through how it can affect your finances. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. And in the next half of the episode, I want to discuss how burnout can affect your finances. We know burnout can impact on your personal life and suck the energy out of your life. Now, when that happens, you may find other areas of your life also suffer. So let's look at this in more detail. Number one, you eat out more. 
When you're burnt out, you tend to have less time or energy or interest to focus on activities of daily living. This results in less time for cooking or even doing your weekly grocery shopping, even if it means shopping online. Now, we do most of our shopping online nowadays. We find it easier and have relatively same shopping habits most weeks, but even that takes time, especially to take advantage of specials at my local favourite shopping store, Coles. So, Coles, if you're listening, always looking out for more sponsors of this channel. I love Coles. And this results in more taking out and eating out and generally leads to a more unhealthy lifestyle. That's if you're experiencing burnout, you don't have time to do your shopping, so you tend to do more takeouts, eatouts, and generally leading to more unhealthy lifestyles. And eating out means spending more money than perhaps what you need to. This can get your problems into debt or make you work longer and harder hours to earn more money to sustain this lifestyle. I've done an episode about lifestyle creep way back in episode 32. This is a common problem for many people, including healthcare workers, particularly doctors. So take a listen if you want to geek out on this concept. Number two, spending more on discretionary items. To understand this, we need to define what discretionary spending or expenses. It's basically a cost that a household or business can live without. This goes back to a whole concept of needs versus wants. Granted, the needs and wants have changed a lot in the 21st century. For example, entertainment costs like movies, bowling, sporting events, they're examples of discretionary expenses. For a business, sometimes discretionary expenses are due to attracting new customers, so there is a positive side to this in terms of business. Let's use an example. Amy is an obstetric registrar is doing a 12-month rotation in a rural location. There are only two registrars on the roster and four consultants. Amy's roster therefore requires her to work one in two on calls and unfortunately this means for the whole of the 12 months of the rotation she is rostered on for 12 days in a row, gets two days off and then another 12 days in a row. Now part of this also means she's on call overnight every second day and every second weekend. She's experiencing burnout as she works in a hospital with a reasonable birth rate and obstetrics and gynaecological conditions are quite high in terms of workload. The emergency department is busy and does not hesitate to call her in most on-call nights. Now, before listeners gasp at this roster, this is actually the reality for many obstetric registrars and surgical registrars across the country right now. And in fact, this was my roster when I was a surge reg, particularly in the country. It's not uncommon. You're on-call one in two days and you do one in two weekends. You work 12 days and you get two days off. And you do that for the whole year. Now, as a result, Amy doesn't have much time for cooking her meals, exercising, doing a laundry even, or basic household chores. As a result, she decides to eat out every second day when she's on call and every second weekend when she's on call. On days she has off, she gets someone to make her meals for her, which she freezes to eat for the week. She decides to get a cleaner for her home, although if she's lucky enough, that might be included as part of the work package because a lot of the doctors may actually get accommodation paid for in the rural location. But usually if you're doing a 12-month term, probably not. Only if you're doing a three-month term because hospitals realise to get a lease agreement for three months can be quite difficult. But if you're doing a 12-month term, I don't think accommodation may be included in that particular job. You need to check with your employer. And of course, you get someone to keep on top of her laundry. All of this costs money. So Amy's discretionary spending has increased as her work hours has increased and the scene is set for Amy to start experiencing burnout during her term. 
Now, during her days off, Amy spends more time on her phone, watching TVs to unwind, and due to her constant work commitments, she's tired and exhausted. To make things better, she starts buying things online she may not need. That may include new clothes, new shoes. Her income has gone up significantly because she's working a lot more, so she's starting to look at a new electric car. Now, in this example, although Amy's income has increased, her expenditure has also increased as a result. That is, her discretionary expenses has increased significantly. Now, some might argue that things like the cleaner, the meal outs, and getting someone to make meals for her is legitimate because it buys her valuable time back. And I have to be honest, I tend to agree. If you're working that much, the last thing you want to do is do your laundry. But buying a new electric car is not necessary at this time. And it goes into this cycle of lifestyle creep. That is, spending money because you have it is always going to be a bad strategy. In my own family's example, my income has rised exponentially in the last 10 years. But my expenses have not risen exponentially. Apart from school fees expenses, we still have a modest family budget. We don't eat out much. We don't spend much outside of the norms. There is a couple of exceptions. We spend a lot on our kids' education and extracurricular activities. That's a lot of money. But that's all budgeted for and all within the 30% expense limit. We spend a fair bit on holidays now that, you know, borders have opened up and we used to spend a lot of holidays prior to the borders. We do travel. We travel well. We only stay in five-star accommodation whenever we travel. But that's also budgeted for. And again... I'm not a new doctor. been doing this for a number of years, so I've got my systems down-packed. But otherwise, our family budget is relatively modest. What was my impulse buy, though, when I had some money to burn? Is a custom-built pool table. Why? Because I could, and just wanted it. At least now, it is displayed in my home, which happens to have a pool room. So that's a bonus but it was completely unnecessary and I haven't used the pool table probably for 12 to 24 months, to be honest. Number three, the lazy tax. When you're burnt out, you have less time to do things like reviewing your budget, your insurance, your expense and your tax strategies. This results in paying the lazy tax. Now, the word lazy is incorrect in this context as you're not, in fact, lazy. You're actually working your ass off because you're, you know, working a lot of hours. But it's more the fact that you're so time poor due to burnout, you're so busy, so tired, that you simply can't be bothered to focus on the regular experiences, regular debits from your account, and trying to find out if you're actually needing them or not. Do you really need a gym membership or a Netflix account or high download limits on your phone or world's best internet speeds when you're not even home? Or perhaps unlimited phone plans? What about insurance? Car? Building? Contents? Home? Personal? All of this keeps rising every year. Now, I recently did one of my episodes where I answered this particular question about how simply ringing up and asking for a better insurance quote or a home loan rate can often prove wonders. But you need to be motivated and have time to do that. And the people that have burnout tend not to do it. So why do we do this? Why does expenditures go up during periods of burnout? Is it just a quick dopamine hit? Yes and no. We pay for convenience. 
In the 90s, when I grew up, it was not usual to have people to have options for delivery apart from the standard pizza delivery. We didn't have the gig economy like Uber or DoorDash or Deliveroo or Airtasker. It was also highly unusual for middle-class families or so-called upper-middle-class people to have a gardener, to have a cleaner, or sometimes people to help with household meals. We have the option for these jobs to be done by external people today, and it's not as expensive as it used to be. In fact, in the last 10 years, there's been an explosion of cleaning and household service companies in major cities around Australia. Interestingly, such concepts have always existed in other countries, particularly in developing economies. It's not unusual to have cleaners or gardeners or household chefs in countries like India, Sri Lanka or subcontinental countries or even Southeast Asia. It's not as common in Australia, but it is becoming more and more common. It just means people have more opportunity to buy back their time and it also means people have the opportunity to become service providers through these companies to earn an income or have a lifestyle change. In fact, my treadmill was actually assembled by a company CEO. I asked him, why are you doing this? You don't need the money. He said he's doing it because it keeps him fit, occupied, and he gets to do something other than CEOing. Number two is self-rewarding. We like to reward ourselves for the hard work we do. It's a coping mechanism. Social networks, ease of frictionless shopping online makes it easier to do it and so much harder to resist. How many times have you logged on to Instagram or Facebook or Twitter only to find out how awesome everyone else's life is? Holidays, maybe flashy cars, nice clothes or shoes or experiences. People tend to put their positive experiences much more frequently online than their negative experiences. And all of this puts subtle pressure on individuals to do the same. Of course, doing the same costs money, which we may or may not have. Now, at this stage, let me give you a real-life example of someone I spoke with. A real-life example. I spoke with a doctor, and I hope you're listening, because I did say I'm going to share this uh, story with the listeners. I spoke with a doctor who'd done many, many years of specialist training. All up, since the start of medical school, it took them 18 years to achieve fellowship. And that's someone who got through first attempt. A lot of people don't. They went to the city and town centre as a celebration for a purpose of weekend getaway or weekend day off. Because to achieve specialist training and achieve fellowship is a big deal. Guess what? They went into a Mercedes dealership. That wasn't planned. They just saw a Mercedes dealership downtown, decided to go in. A few hours later, they said they walked out having signed a deal for a brand new Mercedes-Benz AMG C63S Black Series. Their main justification was, although they're not planned for it that day, it was just meant to be a weekend getaway, they felt they deserved it. It was a reward for all those hard years of training experiencing burnout. There was only one problem. They couldn't afford the price tag of $220,000. Don't get me wrong, Mercedes-Benz is a great brand. They're awesome cars. I've driven a few. And yes, this particular doctor did work so hard for their career and did experience burnout and did all the crappy jobs you do as a doctor. That still doesn't mean buying a car you can't afford is a good strategy. Now, this might sound like a cliche example, but it happens. It's true. 
Now, what about the potential of earnings? This is often a justification. Isn't that okay to buy an expensive car as a doctor who's done specialist training because they have such high potential of earnings? Potentials of earnings doesn't mean a thing. It just means that they have the potential, but they haven't done it. Buying things based on potential earnings is a slippery slope you don't want to get into. The concept of buying things if you don't have the money or can't afford it, it's simply not a radical concept. So in this case, burnout or a sense of entitlement has resulted in a $220,000 purchase. So what happened to this doctor? Anyway, they rang me. We spoke for a while. And it turns out that current Audi works completely well. They bought it just two years ago as a senior registrar. And they didn't need a supercar just yet. They cancelled the order within the cooling off period, thank God. I think they lost their deposit and will probably buy it when they have a bit more investments and net worth to their balance sheet. Now, I'm not a party pooper. I want people to enjoy things like a new Mercedes or whatever you want to do in your life, maybe a grand holiday, whatever it is. But just be a bit careful and recognise your decision making may be related to burnout. When you start saying things like I deserve it, I like it due to the convenience factor. As long as you recognise it, as long as you recognise you're doing that as a conscious decision, that's fine. But if you're doing it due to an undiagnosed burnout condition, it's a problem. Because you're more likely to make mistakes when it comes to money in those scenarios. Now that's about it for this topic. Let's summarise the burnout subtopics. We covered what is burnout Remember, it is not a medical diagnosis. We covered the risk factors for burnout. We covered some strategies to deal with it and manage it. We covered seeking support and how burnout impacts your finances. Now, before I finish up, I had a really good question about defence housing. Is it a good investment? I apologise, but I actually lost the person's name who asked me this question. So my apologies, I can't put a shout out to you in this podcast episode because I don't know who you are. I'm so sorry. But let's answer this question. Is defence housing a good investment? Now, the purpose of defence housing is to provide homes for members of the Australian Defence Force. If you're a serving member of the member of the Army, Air Force and Navy Reserves, thanks for your service. If you know anyone in the Defence Force, convey our thanks to them. DHA, Defence Housing Australia, provide these homes as investments for investors. It's usually residential property, which is provided. Most of the homes offered are for investments, around 70% of the housing, and 30% of the homes are actually owned and operated by Defence Housing Australia. The main concepts here are good rental income, which is reliable, and long-term leasing, usually 6, 9, 12 years or even longer. There are three ways you can get involved. Number one, you can buy newly built properties by DHA and then lease them back to DHA. Number two is you can register your own investment property to DHA and then lease it to them. You still own the property. Number three is you can buy a property from an existing DHA investor. So what are the bad things about investing in defence housing, money-wise? The management fees can be relatively high, up to 10%. I'm not actually sure why this is the case. These properties for residential purposes, so not sure why exactly it's so high compared to non-defence housing. Generally speaking, there isn't much capital growth 
and they're usually sold at market value. So there isn't negotiation possible. There is some negotiation perhaps, but not much leeway here. Long-term leases can be a problem, which means trying to sell mid-lease is an issue, particularly if you run into financial troubles, which potentially limits buyers' options. Defence housing is not everywhere. The geographical limitation of properties is a problem. Your property needs to be near a base. Now, you're still responsible for maintenance. If you engage DHA services for this, though, the maintenance charge can be relatively high, usually up to 13% of rent, which isn't really a con when you think about it, because you're going to be responsible anyway if you lease it to non-defence tenants. And lastly, extension of leases are at the discretion of DHA. What are some of the good things, money-wise? Long-term stable rental agreements. Leases can be up to 12 years long. You're not going to get that in the private rental market. You get rent even if the property is empty, which means less wear and tear. And rent is paid one month in advance, and I guess this is similar to non-defence rentals as well. But you get rent when it's not actually being rented, which is a positive. You do have the option of property maintenance services. Now, they take a charge, usually around 13% of rent, but it's an in-house service. And if there's a body corporate involved, it can be a little bit higher. But if you're one of those people that can't be bothered doing things yourself, then this might be a good thing for you. Now, in terms of repairs and maintenance, if there's anything non-structural, DHA may actually cover it. And this is a bit unusual when compared to non-defence housing, where the landlord is generally responsible for all repairs, structural or non-structural. You need to clarify this particular point, though, with Defence Housing Australia. And just like any other property, independent valuation of rent is possible and rental increases are also possible. So is defence housing investment a good thing? It's a difficult question to answer, and it really depends on your investing style. Do you invest for capital growth or just yield? Now, personally, I invest for both. So defence housing is not something I've considered. And as most of my listeners now know by now, I don't invest in property anymore. Prefer the stock market. For me, it's easier. I understand it better and it's cheaper overall and there's no leverage. Hope that clarifies that question about the pros and cons of defence housing. Now, that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using or leave a five-star review on all platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. I love reading reviews. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raka from My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.